I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, some seasonably suitable science, including how reindeer tolerate frigid Arctic air while pulling Santa's sleigh. The air must be warmed so it reaches deep body temperature for the lungs to function. And not only that, uh, it has to be humidified as well. And astronomers pin down a kind of mysterious bright star that appears just briefly in the night sky. You could see it just with your naked eye out in the night sky. So any supernova that close would absolutely be visible. Plus, penguins take a few thousand naps a day. And the technology for artificial wombs that could lead to better odds for miracle babies. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. That's the sound of a reindeer-drawn sleigh in Finland. Not exactly a common mode of transportation, but the idea of reindeer as beasts of burden is traditional at this time of year. Which brings us to our first story of today. What do reindeer, we more often call them caribou here in Canada, and Arctic seals have in common? Well, some correct answers would be their habitat, the frozen north. Also, they're both mammals though one lives on land and the other largely prefers the water. But it turns out that one of the things you might be surprised to hear is that they have quite similar noses. That's because both reindeer and Arctic seals have a common problem to cope with, the frigid Arctic air they breathe. Dr. Lars Folkov has studied both animals for many years, but in a new study, he and his colleagues confirmed how their noses help them deal with the extreme dry and cold northerly climate. He's a professor of animal physiology at the Arctic University of Norway. Dr. Folkov, welcome to our program. Thank you very much, Bob. Now, what kind of problems does cold air present to animals like seals and reindeer? Uh, the main problem is that the, the air must be warmed so it reaches deep body temperature for the lungs to function. And not only that, uh, it has to be humidified as well, because cold air is by physical nature also dry air. Ah, so I know that you started looking at this issue in reindeer in your previous work. So just briefly, what did you find in their noses? Uh, Well, reindeer have a complex system of bones inside their nasal cavity. Uh, They are referred to as the maxillary turbinate bones. And the air is also uh, passing through very thin passages, which maximizes the contact between the air and the uh, nasal walls to improve the exchange of both heat and water between the air and nose. Okay. So do seals have similar structures in their noses? Seals definitely have similar structures in their noses, and they 
are even more complex than the uh, structures that we found in the reindeer, which have some scrolled structures as opposed to seals that have a more uh, tree-like structure or branched structure. But apart from that, they serve the same main purpose, namely of enhancing the surface area of nasal wall that is in contact with the air. It's interesting that uh, these are two very different animals, uh, and yet they've they've adapted similar solutions to the same problems, kind of like convergent evolution. Yeah, that definitely so. And uh, a discussion in uh, our group has been as to whether these structures primarily evolved for the purpose of uh, conserving heat or whether it was equally important to conserve water because these structures do both of these things. Well, well, take me through that. How do they conserve the water? Well, when these animals inhale cold air, it is also very uh, dry air. Actually, one liter of uh, Cold air contains uh, only one-twentieth of the amount of water that you find in one liter of lung air. And all these, uh, this water has to be added from the animal as the air is passing through the nasal cavity. And if all this air is exhaled at deep body temperature and full of humidity, quite a lot of water will uh, be lost. But... Uh, the heat exchange system that these animals possess can recover both part of the heat and part of the water that is added during inhalation. Boy. Now, is this adaptation in the seals and the reindeer noses uh, just for the Arctic or um, like seals live everywhere? They're all over the world. That is uh, what we have investigated in a recent publication where we compared uh, monk seals from the Mediterranean with uh, an Arctic seal species. And previous studies have shown that the uh, lower latitude seal, the monk seal, actually have much less complex turbinate systems inside the noses. So they have a smaller surface area of nasal wall exposed to their that they are breathing. So if we took a, a seal from warmer water and brought it up to the Arctic, would it be able to do as well? It would not work out very well for that seal because uh, they would be unable actually to warm cold air to long temperature before it reached the lungs even. Ah. So how much more heat and water would it lose per breath? Yeah, it would probably st- uh, lose at least uh, twice as much of the heat that uh, a uh, Arctic seal can retain or conserve through its much more elaborate system. Boy, and the moisture? You could say that heat and water goes hand in hand. So ah. the proportionally, it's, it would be the similar uh, gain mm-hmm. in its water economy. So are there any practical applications that we could take from uh, the ability of the seals and the reindeer to retain heat and moisture in cold temperatures? If not heat and moisture, so at least uh, heat, exchange mechanisms in general are of great interest now in uh, commercial and industrial applications. And one of these applications could, for example, be the production of uh, natural gases. And uh, for the transportation of these gases, they need to be liquefied. And for that to happen, you need to cool them 
which is energy demanding itself, and then you need to reheat them to transfer them from a liquid back to a gas again before they can be used. And in these systems, huge amounts of energy are used, and if efficient heat exchange mechanisms could be applied, a lot of uh, savings could be made. Well, we always find that uh, nature has had millions of years of evolution to perfect these systems, so we can always learn from it. Definitely. And uh, this is something which is uh, receiving uh, increased focus, not only in industry, but in, in medicine too. Just one last thing. When you were studying the reindeer noses, did you find any evidence that they can glow brightly to guide a sleigh at night? <laughs> we did actually conduct a study uh, where we investigated the changes in the perfusion of the uh, nostrils because the nostrils uh, receive a separate bloodstream from that which is perfusing the internal walls of the nasal cavity. And that is important because the nostrils are exposed to the uh, Arctic chill and must be prevented from freezing. And in that context, when the reindeer are moving in uh, cold environments, uh, there is an increase in the blood flow to the nostril area. In most reindeer, the nostril skin is black, but there are some white reindeer where the skin is very light and actually is pinkish. And uh, perhaps they would have uh, a nose lighting up with a reddish light in the uh, Christmas. So they can go red. <laughs> they can go red, yeah. Dr. Folkov, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, letting me be on this show. Dr. Lars Folkov is a professor of animal physiology at the Arctic University of Norway. Of course, Santa's reindeer are famous for working all night long to help the big guy travel all around the world, but that doesn't mean other reindeer don't work just as hard. In their northern homes, reindeer, and again, we know them as caribou on this side of the pond, live in areas with lots of sun in the summertime and lots of darkness in the wintertime. And warm or cold, dark or light, food is their biggest priority. Reindeer, like cows, are ruminants, which means they need to chew and rechew their food over and over again to extract every bit of nutrition from it. So that makes eating a 24-hour-a-day job, which made sleep experts wonder, how are they fitting sleep into their busy schedules? Now in a new study, we've got the answer. It turns out that reindeer are expert multitaskers and can catch a quick power nap while they're chewing. Melanie Furr is a neuroscientist with the University of Zurich. She led the study. Dr. Furr, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. First of all, why did you want to look at how reindeer sleep? So we knew already from studies that had been published before, if we just look at their activity, that they are much more active in summer than in winter, and also that um, under the constant conditions in summer and winter, that then they do not show 24-hour rhythms. And this is quite special because if I would put you, for example, in a dark room 
um, for a long time, you would still have a sleep-wake rhythm that is more or less 24 hours. So reindeer are really interesting in regards of their inner biological clock that drives these rhythms. Now, before your study, what did we know about how their sleep differs during the winter and the summer? So before our study, we only could guess how their sleep looks like from the activity data we had. And from this, we actually thought they, that they might sleep more in winter and less in summer because they're much more active in summer. But now with the new study, we found out that this is actually not true because only if we measure the brain activity, we can really know if an animal is actually asleep or if it's maybe just chilling. Now, in addition to the sleep, they're also ruminating their food. How important is that to them? That is very important um, to digest the food and to get all the energy out of it that they need because like this they can decrease particle size and therefore the bacteria then in their guts can really um, digest everything and get more energy out of it. Mm -hmm. So it's super important, especially um, in summer when they eat a lot so that they get as much out of it as possible so that they are prepared for the winter where there's not so much food available. Well, take me through your study. How do you study sleep patterns in reindeer? So we glued electrodes on their skin. We placed a little recording device on their back so that they could still move freely around. And it lasted for around four days. So we had then um, data of their brain activity for four days. And from there, we could then see when they were sleeping. What was it like working with the reindeer? It was great. So it was actually, <laughs> for me, it was the first time I ever saw a reindeer in real life. And the first things we had to do was to get them used to us. So we, our first job was to just be with them, pet them, talk to them, and then try to touch them at their head so they get used to us placing these electrodes or shaving their fur and so on. Um, actually, the first time I was there, I, I walked. So sometimes we would go on a little walk in these enclosures so they can get out of the stable a bit. And the first time one reindeer escaped. <laughs> so that's, that was the first impression I made on them. <laughs> but then we, we could get it back. And from then on, this reindeer actually became my favorite. <laughs> so what did you find then when you looked at their sleep patterns? So what we found was first that if we looked at their 24-hour rhythms in their sleep pattern, that this matches with what we already know from activity data, so that they sleep more during the night and less during the day in fall, but that they don't have a 24-hour rhythm in summer and in winter. And then the more surprising finding was that they sleep a similar amount across the whole year. So they do not sleep more in winter or less in summer, but actually need a similar amount across the whole year. And then what we also did, we kept them awake for two hours. And then we looked at the brain waves during deep sleep. So there um, we have typically uh, very slow and big waves. And these waves, they're called slow waves. They get bigger if we have been awake for a long amount of time. And this shows that sleep pressure has been increasing across this wake time. Mm -hmm. And this was also true in reindeer. So we saw that these waves got uh, bigger. So that means that after we kept them awake, they were sleeping deeper. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the most fascinating um, finding was that if we looked at this um, after an episode of rumination, that then these waves became smaller. So that means that... Um, sleep pressure decreased across rumination. 
So also if we look at the brain waves during rumination, um, we were able to detect some typical characteristics of so-called non-REM sleep, deep sleep. So for example, if a reindeer um, ruminates more because maybe it was eating more or a certain type of food, so it needs to ruminate more, then this reindeer would need less additional non-REM sleep. So does that mean they're sleeping while they're ruminating? Yes, exactly. So this really ah. shows that this rumination time also fulfills a similar function and really decreases that sleep need. So if they're sleeping during these short periods of ruminating, how much does that add up? Like how much sleep are they getting in a day? Um, if we take everything together, they sleep a similar amount as we do. So around eight, nine hours, something like that. If we count now rumination as sleep too. Boy. So why is it important to understand the sleep patterns of reindeer and caribou? Mm -hmm. I think it's generally important that we study different animals. So not just humans, mice, rats, maybe the fruit flies, so animals that have st uh, been studied a lot in terms of sleep, that we just study all kinds of animals we can, so to really see how sleep is regulated, what might be the functions, and so on. And why exactly reindeer? I think there it was really the motivation was because of their biolog inner biological clock that drives these 24-hour rhythms that seems to be regulated a bit differently. So therefore, it was interesting to see how their sleep looks like. <laughs> well, I'll think about this while I'm dozing off as I'm eating my Christmas dinner. <laughs> Just make sure my forehead doesn't fall into the mashed potatoes. <laughs> Just one last thing. Could this mean then that when reindeer are on the roof waiting for Santa to go down the chimney, that they're probably taking naps? Yeah, I guess if they are busy all the time, they, they need some time to take naps. So yes, <laughs> most likely, <laughs> because they need a certain amount of sleep even when they bring the presents, I think. <laughs> Dr. Furla, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks to you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Melanie Furr is a neuroscientist with the University of Zurich. And coming up, we heard about sleepy reindeer. Now we've got some sleepy penguins. And while I know penguins don't live near the North Pole, don't they seem sort of Christmassy? Most of us have done it. You're a little sleepy and your head starts to nod. Then, hopefully, just seconds later, you wake with a start and look around to see if anyone noticed. It happens in an overheated classroom or lecture, or frighteningly, maybe behind the wheel when you're driving unwisely overtired. For humans, these short bursts of sleep are no substitute for a good night's snooze. But in the animal kingdom, it can be a different story altogether. Take the chin-strap penguin that lives in the South Pacific and Antarctica, for example. And a new study of their sleep habits when they're nesting shows they are masters of micro-naps. Dr. Paul-Antoine Liberel is a sleep physiologist who contributed to the study. Dr. Liberel, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Yeah, hello. Now, you have visited these colonies. Uh, what kind of pressures are these chin-strap penguins uh, under when they're in the colony that could impact their sleep? There is many pressure. I, I would say two pressure. The first one is the predation pressure because there is a 
predator that would like to catch their eggs. And the other pressure could be uh, the fact that they are sleeping in the colony with many disturbance, noise and a bad smelling in the colony. So too big pressure on their sleep. How big are these colonies? Uh, I know that there is 3,000 breeding pairs. Wow, <laughs> holy smokes. <laughs> Once you got to the colony, how did you monitor the birds? Um, we have used this uh, small device. Uh, we make it waterproof to resist for a big pressure and salt water. And we tape it on the animals to be able to record their brain activity as well as their behavior. So we have something on the head and something on the back. We catch the animal, uh, equip them, and then we release them for many days and weeks and we capture them. So and then we, we are able to retrieve the data at that time. And the last thing that is quite important is the video, because there is many things that occurs during sleep, eyes opening, um, twitches during rapid eye movement sleep. And then we have been able to put some camera, not continuously, but we have some video recording uh, of, the, of the penguin sleeping. So once you set all of this up, what did you find was going on in their brains? What was really uh, surprising was the fact that they were sleeping fragmented, but not only fragmented, fragmented all the time. They were sleeping continuously with microsleep. Well, when you say microsleep, how short were their bouts of sleep? Their uh, sleep bouts last around four seconds in mean. They, they accumulated 75% of their sleep with sleeping bouts lasting less than 10 seconds, so very short. Less than 10 seconds. They go right to sleep and back awake again in 10 seconds. Exactly. They do it uh, 600 times per hour, which is around 14,000 times a day. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. So if you add all of that up, how much sleep are they actually getting? They are sleeping 11 hours a day. Like most of the other birds, uh, they spend half of that time sleeping, but sleeping in a fragmented way. And it is just like they were always in between sleep and wake, all the time. What did you see on the video while they were doing these micro-sleeps? We found that there is a high correlation between the sleeping brain pattern and the high closure. It seems that the animals were closing and opening the eyes really in phase when, uh, with their sleep state. So if you just stay near the nest and look at the bird, you can observe it opening one eyes, opening two eyes, closing two eyes, closing one eyes, and do it repetitively. <laughs> so they're still keeping an eye out for those predators. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is what we think, but uh, there is no clear proof that they sleep like this for that purpose. This is an explanation that we have, because when animals are sleeping, they are not aware about the environment. They can't protect their eggs, they can't protect their self. So we think that there is a, a compromise, a trade-off that the animal can, should find between sleeping and remaining vigilant and protecting the eggs. Now, what about their position in the colony? Uh, like how much they sleep if they're on the outside edge? You said there are thousands of these birds. So if they're on the outside compared to inside the colony? So we were expecting that the animal sleeping on the or being on the on the border of the colony, we're expecting them to have less sleep, maybe more fragmented or maybe more unilateral, unihemispheric sleep. But finally we found exactly the reverse. We found that the animal in the center were sleeping more fragmented, less, and um, so this was quite surprising for us. 
we think that there is many disturbances in the colony that could contribute to the fact that they have a more disturbed sleep. <laughs> Noisy neighbors. Yeah, so it's good <laughs> to sleep in the center because you protect your eggs, but the problem is that you probably, or when I say you, it's the penguin, uh, they have a, a, a worst sleep. If I can say worst, because actually I have no idea whether it's better or not better for a penguin to sleep less. <laughs> Boy, so you're either going to get poor sleep if you're on the outside of the colony because of predators, or you're going to get bad sleep on the inside because of your noisy neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Now, these penguins, we know that they pair bond. So while one of them is taking care of the egg in the colony, the other one's out at sea. What about those birds? During that time, they remain highly active. Almost 70% of the time, the animals are active. But sometimes they can sleep, they can have some uh, floating behavior. It seems that the animals are resting at the surface of the sea. At that time, on few birds, we were able to detect some sleep signatures. So for the first time, we demonstrated that animals can have some sleep when they were foraging at sea. Uh, however, we have no idea whether it's more or less fragmented. The only thing that we can know is that they drastically reduce the quantity of sleep when they are foraging. Are there any lessons that we can take from the penguins uh, to apply to humans who have sleep disorders? I'm sorry, no. The only <laughs> lesson is don't try to sleep like a penguin. And, uh, <laughs> because if you sleep too short, I'm pretty sure you, you will feel bad. So the only lesson from this study is that sleep is a central behavior in many animals and a sleep st a state that is under uh, ecological constraint and that we should take in account to protect the, uh, the animal and to better understand how they live. Dr. Liberel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Dr. Paul-Antoine Liberel is a comparative sleep biologist at the French National Center for Scientific Research in Lyon, France. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. The idea that the Christmas star, or the star of Bethlehem, was in fact a supernova was first suggested by Johannes Kepler in the 17th century. And while it's fun to think about the three wise men being drawn to Bethlehem by a distant exploding star, there isn't much proof to back it up. But who knows what we'll find in the future? After all, scientists are solving supernova mysteries all the time. Like a new study that has finally solved a long-standing mystery of the naked stars. Researchers studying supernovae often found that the exploding stars were missing their usual outer layer of hydrogen. They were stripped down to just their helium core. But it wasn't known where this outer layer was going. And now, astronomers have, for the first time, been able to see how these stars are ending up stripped naked. It turns out their companion stars are to blame. Dr. Maria Drought is an assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. She led the study. Dr. Drought, welcome back to Quarks and Quarks. Thank you for having me. So what was the mystery you were trying to solve? 
Well, this was something that had been a mystery for a few decades and really since about 10 years ago. As you said, we had this set of supernova. My background mostly is studying supernova. And when we see them explode, we have about one in three of these stars explode without any hydrogen left, which is not what we expect a star just evolving and moving throughout its life to look like. And it was quite a lot of them. But we had one possible solution. One was that we actually know that massive stars, ones that will explode, quite often are not living their lives alone. They often come in pairs. They have binary companions, so two stars orbiting around each other. And not only that, we actually have known for about a decade or so that most of them are in binary pairs, and most of them actually are close enough to their binary companions that we think as these stars evolve and expand throughout their lives, you reach this point where actually the outer layers of one of these stars actually become more, feel more gravitational pull, not to the star it's part of, but towards the binary companions. The outer layers get pulled off. So we actually thought we saw these supernova, we think they need some way to remove the hydrogen, and we also had all of these binary stars that we observe, and we thought, well, if we just think we understand how stars evolve, these stars should have their outer envelopes removed by their binary companions. So we had sort of each sides of these, but there was a problem. We didn't actually know of any systems where you actually have two stars still, and one of them is sitting there, and the other one doesn't have any hydrogen left. Ah, so the idea is that one star strips the clothing off the other star. Basically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just the gravity's strong enough, it pulls it right off. <laughs> now, how did you know these stripped stars even existed? Yeah, so we knew that they should exist, and we think they should exist because that's our best explanation for why so many supernovae explode without hydrogen. So we really thought they should exist, we just hadn't seen them. So we were left with this conundrum. Either we're just not looking in the right way, or they really are rare, and that means our physical model, both for how stars evolve and where these supernovae are coming from, are wrong. <laughs> Those were our two options. <laughs> well, what makes these stripped stars so hard to see? So as it turns out, what makes them really hard to see is that they're really hot. So if you think about it, what these strip stars are is basically the core of what was the original star. It's had its outer layers of hydrogen removed, and so it's this very hot helium core. They're small and they're hot, and so they emit actually most of their light, not in visible light that we can see with our own eyes, but out in the extreme ultraviolet. So how are you able to go about seeing them? So this... It's hard to look in the ultraviolet, as it turns out, because Earth's atmosphere is in the way. It blocks ultraviolet light, which is great for us as humans. It would be much worse for our you know, skin care if uh, we had lots of ultraviolet light coming all the way down to the surface. But that means we can't use telescopes here on Earth to actually look for ultraviolet light. We have to use satellites. So the Hubble Space Telescope is very good at looking at ultraviolet light, but it only looks at pretty small patches of the sky at a time. So the real breakthrough, we actually started this project all the way back in 2016. And at that point, very recently, a satellite called the SWIFT mission, which has a UV telescope on board, had taken, it took an immense amount of time to do, you know, 150 or 200 pointings of this telescopes to map out the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are satellite galaxies near our own Milky Way, in ultraviolet light. And it was really this treasure trove of data. So we went through this process of taking that data set and measuring how bright are millions of stars in the ultraviolet and looking for, we found a few hundred of them that seemed to have extra light there, which might indicate there was something else going on besides just the star we could see when looking at visible light. Wow. So how did you determine that it is actually a binary pair with one of them stripped of hydrogen? 
Yeah. So then you go. So you have this set of stars that might be this, and then you have to go get more data. So we got using a telescope in Chile called the Magellan Telescopes. We got spectra of these objects. So ones where you break up all of their light into their individual wavelengths. And then you can actually see things like what elements are present in the atmosphere and other details like that. So we were able to use these spectra to say these objects are very hot and they also are hydrogen poor. So we were able to put together this picture where you can say, yes, these stars actually are incredibly hot, they're lacking in hydrogen, and we could also see the motion of these stars over time, indicating that they actually are in a binary pair and orbiting around each other. So you sort of found a missing link in stellar evolution here. Absolutely. <laughs> Just one last thing. If these stars were to explode up there in the Magellanic Clouds, would they be visible on Earth, possibly on an evening just around Christmas time? Absolutely. So uh, the Magellanic Clouds are very close to us. Um, there actually was a supernova that exploded there back in 1987. It was called Supernova 1987A, and you could see it just with your naked eye out in the night sky. So any supernova that close would absolutely be visible. Unfortunately, these stars, we're pretty sure we understand uh, what phase in their evolution they're in, and they probably won't explode for a million years or so. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Dr. Drought, thank you so much for your time. Excellent. Thank you very much, Bob. Dr. Maria Drought is an assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. And, of course, a show about seasonal science should definitely include something about miracle babies. It's okay, Jackson. Born more than three months prematurely, twins Jackson and Paisley had a slim chance of survival. There you go. For 83 days, their mother Amy has been at their bedsides inside the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or NICU, at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital. It was tough. They were pretty sick when they were first born. And um, every day it was, it was, you were living like a minute by minute sort of thing. And, but it's been getting a lot better. Here we go. About 8% of babies born in Canada are premature. And medical science has made enormous advancements in caring for them. These days, with intensive neonatal care, infants born up to three months early can have an excellent chance at survival. But the sad truth is that survival drops off quickly after that. Babies born at 25 weeks survive a little over 80% of the time. At 23 weeks, it's 50-50, and survival rates drop precipitously after that. It's very difficult for an infant born at 21 weeks or earlier to survive. But we may soon be able to change those odds. In September, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which regulates medical devices, met to discuss the latest science behind artificial wombs. The science has had some dramatic results. Several years ago, photos of a lamb in a bag, the tiny animal in an artificial womb, were released showing how far this technology has come. Canadian scientists have worked with fetal pigs in their version of the artificial womb, and soon this technology could be used for humans. 
Christoph Haller was part of the Canadian Research Group. Dr. Haller is a cardiovascular surgeon at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Haller, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you. Uh, first of all, when it comes to anatomy, how are fetuses different from infants? The fetus is not built yet to live outside of the womb. Uh, they are still maturing and a lot of maturation and preparation occurs that prepares the fetus for life in basically the environment that we are in. And the environment of the womb is, is liquid as well. Yeah, I think that is a very striking difference, obviously, that there is no gas exchange uh, the way we are used to it, like an air gas exchange using the lungs. That's probably one of the key organs that uh, limits survival uh, of those born at the very premature end. So how does this unique anatomy of the fetus influence the development of, of technologies like an artificial placenta? I think what we've learned over many years of experience in the very premature born um, patients is that uh, a lot of comorbidity, a lot of mortality arises from us trying to make organ systems work in uh, basically environment that they are not made for. Uh, so we try to ventilate a lung that's not ready for gas exchange. We try to uh, mitigate injury that we're inflicting thereby. Um, and uh, I think that's where the whole research is aiming for. Well, what are some of the risks associated with being born very premature? The highest risk um, group are those born at the age of basically 22 weekers up to probably 24, 26 weekers. Uh, that's kind of the group of patients that uh, face a mortality rate that is very, very high. Well, what would be the benefits of an artificial womb compared to the technology that's currently used to help premature babies? The idea is to mitigate the injury that happens once you take them out of the their uh, intrauterine environment and then instead basically try to preserve their physiology. Well, take me through the artificial womb, the technology. First of all, what's it look like and what are the different components? I think the, the key components are uh, most of all an oxygenator that tries to re replace the placenta. And what the oxygenator does is basically it uh, allows for gas exchange so that we're taking out um, CO2 out of the fetal blood and allow O2 to be transported back to the fetus. That is, in our case and in many other groups, uh, done through the umbilical cord, pretty similar to what uh, uh, it would be in the case of uh, normal fetal physiology. That is the key component, focusing on basically allowing the lungs not to work and mature and still maintaining gas exchange. But there are other components like the environment that is more referred to as a womb, basically the liquid environment that the fetus is preserved in. But that's still uh, for a simplification of the complexity of basically a true intrauterine environment. So there's a, there's a liquid environment that the, the fetus is put into, and then you tap into the umbilical cord. Uh, be, besides just oxygen, what else are you feeding it? Yeah, that's a uh, a good point. Obviously, the the placenta is not only there for uh, gas exchange, but also for supplying nutrition. 
for excreting certain uh, substances. And what we do is we provide basically uh, parenteral nutrition to the fetus through that system as well. Now, I know that uh, this hasn't been done on human subjects yet, but how would that work if you've got a baby that's in in the mother's womb and you want to put it into this artificial one. How, how do you do that? So imagine a caesarean section where you gain access to the umbilical cord and then you basically cannulate those cord vessels uh, to the new system before you actually clamp the cord. And once basically that transition happened, you can detach the fetus and get it into that new artificial environment. So in the end, what does your artificial womb actually look like? At the moment, this is uh, basically a fluid-filled bag-like uh, system uh, that uh, utilizes otherwise clinical available equipment. But it's basically systems that are used in cardiac surgery and um, in uh, you know lung disease and thoracic surgery and things like that to provide oxygen and blood flow in the body. So we are repurposing this basically equipment uh, in this setting. So just to summarize then, the artificial womb now is just basically a bag of fluid that's hooked up to a bunch of equipment that's already used in hospitals, like ventilators, dialysis machines, mechanical pumps to help the fetus breathe. Yeah, and I think that highlights also uh, where this research is going. I think um, uh, in our opinion, a lot of these kind of repurposed equipment structures, they need to be tailor-made for the purpose from a hemodynamic perspective, from a gas exchange perspective, and from the hormonal uh, waste excretion uh, perspective as well. How much do you think this technology could improve the survival rates of extremely premature babies? Uh, I think even changing prematurity from a 22-weeker to a 24-weeker or a 24-weeker to a 26-weeker already has such a substantial impact on the outcome uh, that I think it would, if it works clinically in humans, that it would have a substantial impact on on how medicine is run in these infants and what the outcome might be. So it's a matter of buying days. I think in the early stages, yes, it is. So how far do you think we are from human trials in the artificial womb? It's always a tough call, and probably pushing too quickly to clinical translation can set the field back as well. But um, I think we have the means to make it happen. You know, development of technology, tailor-making, custom apparatuses, etc., has become way more easy than it has been, uh, let's say, 10 years ago. Uh, so I think that we're all set to to make it happen. The timelines, you know, to be honest, I think everything's just a guess. Dr. Holland, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for the interview. Christoph Haller is a cardiovascular surgeon at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto. With current medical technology, we have a handle on the very beginning of an embryo's existence, IVF or in vitro fertilization. What used to be called test tube babies is practically routine these days. And as we just heard, the artificial womb technology we're currently developing may help us take over the end of gestation and help babies born well before they reach full term, starting from 22 or 24 weeks. But in between, a mother's womb is absolutely unequivocally necessary. 
but is there a way we could move gestation to an artificial womb even earlier? Or even think about gestation entirely outside the womb? The key is probably in understanding one singular organ, the placenta. In the artificial womb setup, the placenta is replaced by machines that feed oxygen and nutrients to the newborn. But that's only a fraction of all the placenta does in utero, particularly in early development. Miriam Hemberger has learned just how much it does in her studies of the placenta in mice. Dr. Hemberger is a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and the Department of Medical Genetics at the University of Calgary, where her work is helping reveal how complicated the placenta's role really is. So it turns out that the placenta has key roles in directing development of both the heart and the brain. It has become clear from research in mice that the heart can be fundamentally wrong in its development only because there are deficits in the placenta. So you're saying that the placenta is not just a life support system. It's actually sending signals to the embryo, telling it how to grow properly. That is correct. In artificial placentas, the function of oxygen, nutrient exchange between mom and the fetus gets replaced with some medical equipment. Is that enough to substitute for a placenta earlier in development? A key question here will really be when we would substitute the placenta with an artificial system. So many of um, the key processes take place very early in development, where specific cell populations are set aside to form particular organ systems and then drive their normal differentiation. Uh, so this happens in the mouse in the first half of gestation and in humans in the first trimester. But this is not to say that after the first trimester, the placenta switches to a solely nutritional role, because, for example, brain development really has fundamental processes happening well into the third trimester. But it's also when very pivotal connections between neurons are made. So that wiring that takes place um, during the third trimester and if we now only provide an embryo with sugar and oxygen, that is possibly not enough to get all that wiring correct. Would it be possible to learn the signals that the placenta sends to the fetus in, in terms of how to develop and maybe duplicate those signals artificially? In theory, yes, but it requires a deep understanding of what these signals are and the quantities of these signals, because as so often, uh, there's the Goldilocks situation where uh, you need just the right amount of the right thing and the right combination of things. So we would really need to know precisely the hormones, the growth factors, the other signaling molecules that the placenta might send to the embryo, and get their composition right, as well as the exact amounts of them. So what are we starting to learn about some of these hormones and signals that need to be considered in some future artificial womb? Yeah, we, for example, know um, of two 
hormones that sort of uh, have caught attention in the literature. The one is serotonin. Um, serotonin is a key hormone that drives neurodevelopment during key critical time points in gestation. And there are particular time windows in development when the serotonin is only made by the placenta and brought into the fetal blood circulation to then make those neuronal connections and the correct differentiation of those brain cells. Another uh, hormone is called Apella. Apella is also made by the placenta, but not only by the placenta. And Apella is very important for heart development. So again, it's another example that really um, placentally produced factors such as hormones, cytokines, uh, other molecules that can drive cellular differentiation, proliferation, have a key role in making the baby differentiate just right as opposed to sheer growth. Is there anything else about the environment inside the uterus that would be missing in an artificial womb setup? So the oxygen concentration changed during development, uh, such that in the first trimester, the embryo develops in a hypoxic environment because there's really not yet any blood flow through the placenta. So no maternal blood comes into the placenta. And the correct differentiation of both the placenta and the embryo rely on this hypoxic environment. And it is only in the second trimester that blood flow into the placenta kicks in and thereby delivers more oxygen. And again, that is, of course, pivotal to then make the next steps of development happen properly. And we need to get these oxygen concentrations also uh, correct if we were to imagine artificial womb systems to ensure that all of these processes occur at the correct time in the correct way. Okay, so currently artificial wombs are discussed as a way of helping babies survive past the 22nd week of gestation. Given your research, could this technology work for babies born even earlier than that? That is difficult to answer because there are so many aspects of research that still have to happen both on the development of artificial womb systems as well as on a profound understanding of the placenta and its precise functions in development. Uh, the placenta has been notoriously understudied and neglected in research. So this is um, one of the aspects where uh, our and my colleagues' work has really promoted that area to appreciate the multifold and multifaceted functions of the placenta in a much better way. So it, it will be tricky um, to replace the placenta either entirely or even earlier than 22 weeks or even from 22 weeks onwards, because after all, there are so many aspects that we need to get right. Dr. Hemberger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Miriam Hemberger is a professor at the University of Calgary and program director of Precision Medicine and Disease Mechanism at the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. She also holds the Canada Research Chair in Developmental Genetics and Epigenetics. And now it's time for the Quirks and Quarks listener question. science. 
Hi, this is Gail Dowell. I live in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. But Santa lives in the North Pole, where there's a lot of snow and it's very cold. So my question is, why don't Santa's reindeer's legs freeze? Why don't any deer's legs freeze? Thank you. To get the answer, we go to Stephanie Leonard. She's the environmental coordinator at the Assiniwachi Winawak Nation in Alberta and project manager for their Caribou Patrol program. Ms. Leonard, welcome to our program. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, deer legs look pretty skinny. What do we know about how they can handle the cold? Well, like many animals that live in cold areas, Santa's reindeer and other deer have a lot of adaptations for cold temperatures. They are insulated by thick hair during the winter, which traps warm air next to their skin. If you were to cut one of their long guard hairs and look under it under a microscope, you would see that it's hollow and filled with pockets of air that provide extra insulation. Wow. Okay. So other than their fur, do they have any other adaptations to make sure that their uh, skinny legs don't freeze? They do, yes. Reindeer and deer lower legs are mostly tendons, ligaments, and keratin, which are less sensitive to the cold, so they don't need to keep their legs as warm as the rest of their body. Reindeer also have what's called a countercurrent heat exchange. This is an arrangement of arteries and veins, which means that as blood moves into the animal's extremities, like its legs, heat is transferred from warm blood flowing from the heart to cold blood flowing from the legs. This makes sure the animal doesn't lose heat and keeps warm blood near the center of the body where it's needed. Wow. Now, our questioner asked about reindeer. I know they're also called caribou. Are caribou legs and deer legs similar? Yes, all the animals in the deer family have a similar adaptation in their legs to help keep them from getting too cold and allow them to move through the snow. Okay, that's their legs. What about their feet? Well, their feet, like most ungulates, are a hoof. So they're, it's kind of just like your tough fingernails. And that's the only part that tends to touch the ground. And there's no nerves or blood vessels in that section. So there's nothing to keep warm. And it keeps any area that has the blood vessels away from contact with the cold ground. Just one last thing. Is there any scientific evidence in reindeer legs that uh, tells you how they know how to fly? Unfortunately, that is a secret only Santa can tell us. We've been looking into it, but our reindeer and our caribou don't seem to know that particular secret. <laughs> Ms. Leonard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Stephanie Leonard is the Environmental Coordinator at the Assiniwachee Winawak Nation in Alberta and Project Manager for their Caribou Patrol Program. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Amanda Buckowitz, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. 
all the best for the holiday season. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.